Okay. So, how much money is enough? You ever asked yourself that question? That's a question that was asked to John Davidson or Davidson Rockefeller. Now, Rockefeller, some of you younger people might not know who he is, but he was the founder of Standard Oil. And his answer was, just a little bit more. And if you're familiar with Rockefeller, at the peak of his wealth, he alone was worth about 1% of the entire U.S. economy. He owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry of his time. His wealth by buying power far surpassed that of either Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. But his answer was puzzling. It was puzzling for this reason. Rockefeller was a well-known evangelical Baptist. He gave piles of his money away to both his local church and other organizations, other non-for-profits, many of them evangelical organizations. He believed it was his gift from God to make money and to give it away. It's strange. It's strange what money can and cannot buy you. See, money can buy you a house, but not a home. It can buy you a clock, but not time. It can buy you a bed, but not sleep. It can buy you a doctor, but not good health. It can buy you insurance, but not safety. It can buy you pleasure, but not joy. It can buy you books, but not wisdom. It can buy you makeup, but not inner beauty. It can buy you friends, but not friendship. It can buy you prestige, but not respect. One of the many subjects that pastors don't like to talk about, and one subject that many people wonder how much the Bible really has to say, is money. Be surprised to know that, well, first, I'm not one of those pastors. I don't mind talking about money. Um, so I preface that for those who don't know that I spent 20 years in the nonprofit field talking with families and individuals about money. So talking about money doesn't bother me. But I know a lot of pastors that shy away from it. But you may be surprised to know that Scripture contains roughly 2,300 verses that talk about money and wealth. It's one of the most talked about subjects in the entire Scripture. So with that, let's open up in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to gather and to look at it. We thank you for the opportunity just to worship you and uh, to gather as a family and now to wrestle through some scriptures. Uh, Father, scriptures that touch on very practical issues in our life. So we thank you for, again, being in our midst. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that you care about us in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, as we discussed last week, and, and I, was, I was tempted to actually bring my study notes up for this, because this is a real wrestle this week in many aspects. But as you remember last week, we talked about one of the first things I was taught when I went to Bible college and seminary, and that was the most important thing when you touch on Scripture and you start wrestling with Scripture in the Bible 
I told you they gave me three words. Context, context, context. So all that we talk about this morning finds itself in the context of what we've been wrestling through for the last three months or so. So I'm going to read for you the whole section so we get a grasp of what was said from Philippians 10 through verse 22. We'll leave verse 23 to the end. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, and ever, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphrodites the gifts you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greeting every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So we discussed last week this concept uh, that Paul spoke of, and that was fellowship. The fellowship that he had with the church of Philippi. His discourse touched on the topic of contentment, trusting God, and giving. We concluded with verse 14 as Paul expressed gratitude to the believers in Philippi. And depending on your translation, verse 14 either goes with 10 through 14, or some translations lift it up, and it goes 14 through to the end of the book. So we're going to review that last sentence again as part of our sermon or our time together this morning. So starting in verse 14, "'Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble.'" And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. In verse 14, it's simple. Paul is just thanking them, saying, well done, you were willing to share with me, to partner with me in my distress or trouble. And this partnership was not something new. Rather, it goes back to the very beginning of the church of Philippi. You'll recall from Acts 16, Paul makes his way to Philippi. It's a Roman colony. He seeks out a Jewish synagogue, and finding none, Paul and his companions make their way out one Sabbath day, outside of the city, and they join what essentially was an all-woman's prayer group. 
From that small group, the Lord began to call people to himself to work in individuals' lives, first with Lydia. Then later, after they were thrown in prison, we learn of the jailer and his family coming to faith in Christ. And it's from this small group, from this very small church in the beginning, that things continue to grow. See, tithing was part and giving was part of the fabric of Jewish life. And as these people came to faith in Christ, as they developed their love for the Lord Jesus Christ, that habit continued. And it continued with a sense of new joy in their hearts. It was a natural outgrowth for them of their love for the Lord and wanting to see others come to faith for others to come and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this was something that just flew or flowed from their hearts. It was an outgrowth. And as soon as Paul had left Philippi to continue on out of Macedonia, the church of Philippi continued to give, and they sought out Paul, and they gave to the ministry. They shared. They participated with Paul. They partnered with Paul. It's defined as having a, they had a a fellowship with them, a common bond. See, the root word for partnership or partnering or participating is the same as the root word in the Greek for fellowship. You may have heard, if you've been in churches for any length of time, the term koinonia, which is defined as having a common bond with one another. We talk about that being our fellowship with one another. Well, Paul uses another Greek word here, Koinonio. Koinonia? Koinonio. It denotes to... I know, my Greek isn't the best. But it denotes the concept of to share in. The concept of participation. See, when we raise funds here from FBC to support missionaries and mission organizations... In a very real sense, we are partnering with them. We share a common bond. We share a fellowship. We share a desire to see the good news go around the world and touch people's lives. The money given here enables them to do their work of the ministry wherever God has called them. In a very real sense, they become our hands and feet to the Judea and uttermost parts of the world that you and I cannot go to. They become our mouths to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others around the world. It's a beneficial relationship for both the giver and the receiver. See, one day you may enter the gates of heaven And someone will come up to you and say, I just want to shake your hand and thank you. And I believe we'll recognize each other when we're there, but you're going to look at this person and you're not going to recognize them. And your first thought's going to be, and who are you? And they may look at you and I know you don't know me, but those funds you gave it, back in that church in Lambton Shores went across to Samuel and Benita. 
And one day in my neighborhood, I ran into them. And I was talking with them. And they shared the love of Jesus Christ with me. But they were only there because you participated and you gave to them. Or perhaps it may be some adult person now in heaven as we're mature, but maybe somebody else. And they'll come to you and they'll thank you and you'll wonder who they are. You, you might not recognize them. You might not have even seen them. But they've been in the church here and they were at a Sunday school class for a long time. And through that Sunday school class, they came to know Jesus Christ. But your giving was a common bond and fellowship that touched their lives and that's how they came to Christ. Or maybe it's at Daily Vacation Bible School it's there that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Your giving has an impact on the lives of others for eternity, and we need to keep that in mind. Not only could it have an impact, but it does have an impact. That's part of sharing with one another. Paul states that no one shared with him gave support to his ministry. Now, he's not talking about through his whole time that no one gave us money, no one shared with us. The reference is likely to that beginning part of his journey. That we left you and we went out from Macedonia. No, no one was giving to us but you. The church of Philippi was giving to them right away. They saw the need and they meant it. Note the business term Paul uses here in this verse. In the giving and receiving. This could be translated donation, a gift, and receiving. See, the habit of giving was developed early in the church of Philippi. And it was despite their poverty. The church of Philippi was not known for its wealth. The church of Philippi was rather known for its generosity. Paul had this to say about the church of Philippi in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Just listen as I read. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, to which Philippi was part of. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Philippi wasn't a rich church. It suffered from a lot of poverty. There was a lot of angst as far as Where's the money coming from? But they trusted the Lord. And in their poverty, they gave. And, and how they gave. No, co no coercion. There was no sort of slick sales pitch from the front of the church for them. No free gifts. If you give this much this month, you'll get this. Get on our special mailing list. No snake oil. The need was presented to the church. And they did all they could to meet that need. That was it. For the most part in Canada, 
we don't give out of our poverty, but we give out of our wealth. And I know Christian organizations that will play the guilt trip on people, and they'll try to compare incomes here to incomes in other parts of the world. I can truly say that I've met people who have struggled. They live on a, a very meager budget, and they have a lot of I can'ts in their life because they don't have much money. So I'm not discounting that that doesn't happen here in North America. But I've also met individuals who claim to struggle. I meet, meant followers of Christ who claim they cannot afford to give to the Lord. But a closer examination in their budgets, and I can find cable or satellite packages costing between three and $400 a month. I can find two brand new car payments, and they live in a city with a great big transportation system that can help them out too. I remember questioning one family, and this was about a decade ago, their food budget for four was $2,000. Wow, you're eating well. It was my position to question, so I wasn't being too noisy. That, that That was what I was told I was supposed to do. Okay, so out of that $2,000 budget, I was able to get some information that they spent about $1,200 a month on eating out. It was common to see people eat out in downtown London. Marjorie can tell you that. She worked downtown. And they would eat out every day. We're talking downtown London at that time, 8 to $10, and that's just for a quick meal. That's two to two and a half thousand dollars a year. It was common to see coffee budgets of eighteen hundred dollars a year. And if you need to know, that's five dollars a day, every day but Christmas at Tim Hortons. <clears throat> the point is, do we give out of our means? Are willing are we willing to go beyond? Are we giving sacrificially? Verse 16 says this, Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. The New Living states it this way, Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. The word again can be translated, of course, again, but twice or multiple. Out of their poverty, the Philippians gave and gave again. Out of their joy for salvation, in keeping their eyes focused on eternity so others could hear the gospel message. Or in the case of Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, they gave to alleviate their poverty, their need in their church. As I stated, Paul is not fishing here for more support. He's not looking for more money. That's why he reiterates this thought in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The Holman Christian Standard says it this way, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Paul had been accused on numerous occasions of wanting the money, of being a phony, of being a huckster, just out for the money. In Corinth, he took nothing from the people as he preached the gospel. 
He didn't want the issue to be money. He wanted the issue to be Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 through 6, we read this. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly. In spite of the great opposition, you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. For we speak, speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusting with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. Paul's very intent in getting his readers to understand the primary concern is not the gift. Rather, it is the development of the grace of giving. Have you ever heard the saying, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead? I kind of wondered where they got that from. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need and always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasures as a good foundation for the future as, so that they may experience true life. See, the Philippians were not rich in this world, but they still gave, and they stored up for themselves treasures in heaven. Look at verse 18 with me. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphrodites the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul returns to business terminology. That idea of, a, of receiving a full payment means the concept of, of whole or more, filled up, overflowing. Feeling so blessed, he repeats himself, I'm well supplied. He uses that same word in verse 19. The idea is it's complete. His needs have been meant by these gifts, thoroughly meant. And they were meant while Paul himself was in prison because Aphrodite's came, gave the gifts, and he stayed to minister to Paul. See, this attitude, their attitude, was out of their depths of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. They gave, and they gave in abundance. And Paul viewed this as a sacrificial offering, a fragrant offering, acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. To understand this, we've got to move beyond, I, I mean, I know when I read through the Old Testament, we talk about the offerings that take place there. We read about a burnt offering and the concept that this is a sweet smell to the Lord or a, a grain offering is a sweet smell to the Lord. 
I don't know if you've ever smelt burnt flesh. Some of you farmers would have in barn fires. It's not something I would call a sweet offering. It's not a sweet fragrance. And grain offerings aren't that much to smell either. So we need to move away from the fact. I'm convinced it wasn't the burnt, the burning of the flesh or the burning of the grain that caused God to say this, that God found pleasing. Look with me from 1 Samuel 15, 22. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. It was the obedience that was pleasing, unnecessarily the smell. Now, I'm not saying God wasn't pleased with the giving of sacrifices and all that took place, but it was the obedience, the follow-through on his commands. As one commentator stated, the apostle credits the givers with the proper spirit and attitude of faith, love, and gratitude as why they gave, and not merely as an act of sympathy. The Lord looks onto the hearts. When people offered animal sacrifices, it wasn't just the ritual. It was what was happening inside the heart. It was the obedience out of love in an act of faith that the Lord found pleasing. When you give with the right attitude, when you give out of love, out of an expression of a gratitude for all that the Lord has done for us, with a desire to share the love that has been so graciously given to us, God calls that acceptable, a sweet-smelling sacrifice, a fragrance that he enjoys. You ever notice something about sacrifices in the Old Testament, though? They were noticed. Sacrifices in the Old Testament cost you something. You notice it's missing. So when you take your best bull or sheep or whatever it is, or you have to buy two birds when you go to the tabernacle or temple, it costs you something, and you notice that it was missing. I've told you this story before. I dealt with this Christian family over a decade ago. So at that time, $75,000 was a lot of money. And we were working through a budget with him and trying to deal with some of the debts that they had occurred. And as we worked through the budget, we got to, because I knew what church they went to, it was an evangelical church in London. I asked them the question, how much do you give? And he was very proud of himself. Oh yeah, we give every week. I said, good, how much do you give? $25 a week. $1,300 a year. This was less than the amount that they spent on cable each month. Did it cost him anything? Did he notice that money was really missing? Now, the point isn't to judge this man. The point is for you and I to ask ourselves a question, for you and I to examine ourselves. When we give, do we even notice it? I'll have to leave you to answer that question for yourself. Are we giving? Do you give sacrificially? Does it pinch your lifestyle a little bit? Where 
everybody in your income bracket lives like this, but you can't because you're giving to the Lord and you notice it. So you have to live just a little bit less. And I wrestle with that in the sense that God has entrusted to us funds. He's not said that we cannot enjoy life. But when we give, do we give so that we notice that it's missing? Do we actually give sacrificially to those that are in need and to see the message and proclamation of the gospel go out? Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in, the glor- in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, there are those that commentate on these verses and would say, hey, this verse simply applies directly and only to the Philippians. And they do that because it's easier than answering the following question. How come we see people who love the Lord struggle financially? How come we see people that love the Lord in many countries die of hunger? You say it's contextually only to the Philippians, you don't have to deal with that question or wrestle with it. Why do we see Christians in third world countries die of hunger? Or, if you want to turn on the television tonight when you get home, you'll see the other misapplication of it. It's misapplied altogether. As one commentator put it, some people imagine massive treasure house in heaven full of health and wealth and happiness, just waiting for believers to unlock it with faith and thus receive riches to their heart's content. I know certain health and wealth preachers who will like to claim that sending them your cash will open the floodgates of heaven, allowing you to experience the good life. We've all heard that. He probably started preaching an hour ago. Rather than a promise... And this is a hard verse to wrestle with. Rather than a promise, I wonder if it's a state. I wonder if it's a principle. In Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, and remember, Proverbs are proverbial. This is mostly what happens. 99 out of 100 times, this is how it works out. But, but sometimes it doesn't, right? We have people in this church that way. You raise the kids in the Lord, You trust, right? And the Bible says usually in Proverbs, it'll work out. We have families in here that raise your kids in the Lord. And it says they will not depart from it, but they've departed. Proverbs aren't promises. We pray for our, for my case, siblings. In your case, it might be children. And our hearts ache. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you use. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will be overflowing with good wine. Remember, context is important. So I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly what this verse means, but I can tell you what I know it doesn't mean. Context is so important. Last week, and we read it this morning, just a few verses back from here, Our discussion was about how God gives us the strength to be content regardless of our circumstances. So it's highly unlikely that in this verse, 19, 
that Paul switches gears here and that he begins to do a proclamation of the prosperity gospel in health, wealth, and prosperity for those that would give. One author that I was reading this week, because this was a real struggle point for me, one author that I was reading this week stated this, every good and perfect gift comes from God, James 1.17, but he doesn't dole them out on a quid pro quo basis, meaning you do something for him, he does something for you. And you don't have to look at the world's wealthiest people for long to see they still need God's blessing too. Because this isn't a promise for material blessing. It's a promise for spiritual provision which transcends our circumstances. I think that's the direction the verse is going. But at the same time, as I read other parts of Scripture, God says He will provide our needs. But if He doesn't, He provides the peace and the ability to go through it. Proverbs 11.25, the generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. 19.17 of Proverbs, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord, and He will repay you. Will God meet our needs physically? In general, the Proverbs indicates that He can and will meet our needs, and often He does meet our needs. However, there are those in this world, and we can't answer the question why, who love Jesus Christ, who are believers in Jesus Christ. And whether due to persecution or mismanagement from politicians in their country, they struggle to supply enough food to eat, and some of them do die of hunger. And it's beyond our scope this morning to go in depth into that and to answer that question. But I will say this, I believe that you and I as believers in Christ, in in where we find ourselves and most of us in the North American context, that we have a responsibility to give and we have a responsibility to help those that are in need. Personally, I'm a big supporter of ministries like Compassion Canada or Samaritan's Purse who meet the physical needs but also take the gospel message to these people. I'm also a believer a big, big believer in the local church. And the local church has a responsibility to help those with inside their fellowship. Neither you and I can solve the problem of world hunger, but we can do our part to impact where we can in our corner of the world. And that I believe we're called to do. Thinking of God's provision, God's meeting our needs spiritually and physically Paul concludes the letter by breaking out in in a doxology, by breaking out in praise. Look at verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So one way or another, he knows God will meet us where we're at. And for that, he is just beside himself. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. But Paul doesn't end the letter there. He's got a couple more verses dedicated to greetings. He first sends his personal greeting back to the church in Philippi. In verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Next, the next greeting comes from his co-laborers who are with him. 
the brothers who are with me greet you. And Paul's likely referring to Timothy. Uh, maybe Luke was around at that time, possibly Epaphrodites. And finally, Paul gives a glimpse into the effectiveness of his ministry in Rome while he's in prison. The gospel of Jesus Christ had made its way to the seat of power in Rome, into Caesar's own household. Verse 22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Some of them may have known each other since they were both Roman colonies and since there would have been uh, maybe some back and forth between some of the families or people or leaders. And then he concludes with a benediction in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And then Paul ends. <clears throat> That's his letter of joy. And the letter of joy is not because the church of Philippi is perfect, but because it is spiritually mature. The letter teaches us to always and we're always working on something to become more like Jesus Christ. And he ends on a note of generosity, not calling them <clears throat> excuse me, I got tickle in my throat, not calling them to it, but thanking them for their generosity and their generosity even in their poverty. In observation, Paul was moving around a lot with his missionary journeys and traveling. And while they seemed to have lost track of each other for a while, they didn't lose interest in fellowshipping, in partnering with Paul. They continued to partner with Paul whenever they could. They had a need in Jerusalem, and they wanted to participate in that too. We cannot meet everybody's needs but we have a responsibility to participate when and where we can. So the question is, do we busy ourselves so much, or in our country, do we entertain ourselves so much that we are blind to the needs around us, to those who are hurting in our own church, who worship with us, who sit down the end of the pew from us or hear chairs? We blind to those who are hurting in our communities beyond the doors of Forest Baptist Church. Are we blind to the needs of the world around us? Do we become ostriches to our community and to our church and to the world? And I know we can't do everything, but do we hide our faces like an ostrich in the sand and not see what's happening? Likely none of us will be able to do all that Rockefeller did but we can do something. That giving should not be out of guilt, so I'm not trying to guilt anybody, but an overflowing love from the Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our giving should come from. I can't tell you where to give or how much to give, but I can share with you this scripture. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. Remember this, a farmer who plants only only a few seeds will get a small crop, but one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, or that word is hilariously. 
That is the fragrant offering when you and I give cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share others, as the Scripture says. That's that wrestle part, because I read this and it's like, okay, we give and God's going to make sure He supplies our needs. doesn't always, but it does happen, but, but not always. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the Scripture says, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can wrestle with your Scripture. And sometimes we don't have exactly all the answers. But we thank you that we can wrestle and that we can allow your Spirit to help us to apply what we've learned to our lives. Father, we thank you that you tell us that you love the cheerful giver. Father, that that giving hilariously, giving from the heart and out of an attitude of gratefulness for what you've given us is a pleasing aroma to you, is a sacrifice that you love. So, Father, I ask this morning that each of us in our own hearts commit what we will give according to what you have given to us, that we'll examine our budgets, that we'll examine how we give and what we give to. We thank you for living here as we do in in Canada. We didn't choose this country. You chose that we were born here, and we're grateful for that. And we think this morning of our brothers and sisters in countries where it's war-torn. They don't know where their next meal is coming from, and when they do try to go get one, they're shot at. Father, we thank you and pray for those that live in countries where there's just not enough. So we thank you for ministries like Samaritan's Purse and Compassion and, and others that try to help to meet those needs in those countries and develop people so that they can earn livings and and supply for themselves. Father, we think of our own community. Maybe not so much right in forest, but help us to keep our eyes open to people that may be living on the street or in need and, and to seek out ministries and opportunities to help those in need that live, that may even attend at this church. Father, open our eyes to the needs. And Father, help us not to get overwhelmed, but to trust to do our part where we can. It can be so overwhelming when we look around us and just the inhumanity man has to other men. So Father, we pray for our missionaries this morning around the world, whether they're in Europe or Africa wherever they may find themselves, in in North America ministering. Father, for these people that have dedicated their lives, that we can partner with, that we can have fellowship with, we thank you that they're willing to be an extension, our hands and feet, for Forest Baptist Church in whatever country they find themselves. May we be faithful partners and not detached from them, Lord, but genuinely interested and praying for their needs 
and keeping up to date on what's happening in their lives as they represent us. We thank you again for your love. Father, we ask that you will use us both here at home and abroad to be able to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.